Welcome to season four of Knowledge Cast by Ideals. We are excited about this season's guest, and you can learn more about our guests in this new season and previous seasons at jatwwilliams.com slash podcast. Did you know Jat is an author too? You can learn more from Jat through his book called The Question, a guide to answering life's most important question as he shares his personal journey that began in 1993 to determine the values, principles, and beliefs that would guide all aspects of his life. You can learn more about the question on Jat's website too at jatwwilliams.com. Now let's listen to an all new episode of Knowledge Cast by Ideals. Well, welcome to our fourth season of Knowledge Cast. If you're a regular listener, we're certainly glad to have you back with us again. And if you're a first time listener, welcome and we hope you enjoy today's podcast and will join us again next week. Well, our special guest today is David Dorman. Uh, for those of you that uh, are not familiar with a particular company that he's been involved with a, a long time, David served as director of CVS Health for 16 years and as chairman of the board of CVS Health for 11 of those years. Uh, CVS Health is a Fortune 5 co company, and they generated over $310 billion in revenue in 2022. David also serves on the boards of PayPal Holdings, Dell Technologies and the Georgia Tech Foundation. He started his career in telecommunications in 1981 with Sprint. And at 1994, at the young age of 39, David became chairman, president, and CEO of Pacific Bell Telephone. And in 1999, uh, David became president of AT&T and a few years later was elected chairman and CEO of AT&T. In addition to all that, David has also served as chairman of the board of uh, Motorola from 2007 and 2016. David's professional career is just uh, one success story after another. And David, thanks so much for carving uh, out time uh, of your, we know, pretty extremely uh, hectic schedule just to spend some time with us. So appreciate you joining us. My pleasure. Well, you know, being the, the CEO of Pacific Bell at the age of 39 is pretty rare air. Now, nowadays, uh, CEOs are assuming roles at much, you know, pretty young ages. But at that point in time, that was a that was not the norm. What was your biggest challenge assuming that type of responsibility at what a lot of people would consider a pretty young age for that role? Well, having not grown up in the Bell system, uh, my telecom experience to that point had been with Sprint, which was really a a startup that grew very fast and challenged the status quo. It was uh, basically establishing credibility with the people I work with, like, what does this guy know? Uh, where has he been? It's, this, this was a, a very unusual thing for the Bell System companies to go outside. They basically grew their own. So it was, it was that uh, initial period of uh, proving that I knew what I was talking about and, and was capable of leading and doing that in a way that was collegial and establishing sort of my, my personal uh, strategy is collaborative working. It's not uh, sort of what I call, it's what I refer to as servant leadership, you know, not sort of uh, I'm king, listen to me. Well, you know, there's advantages when someone comes from outside the organization with fresh ideas, but there are definitely, as you said, challenges. I experienced that on a much smaller scale and it happened to be in telecommunications as well. When I became president of a staffing company that was in the 
telecommunications business, and I was the only one in the company that didn't have any telecommunications experience. So it was kind of, it was kind of some interesting uh, times there for a while, and yours was magnitude a lot significantly more than mine. Well, you you also serve on the board of two public companies uh, along with the Georgia Tech Foundation. How much time does your board responsibilities take? I know that there are board meetings, obviously, but there's a lot of work outside uh, committees and things of that nature. How do you, how do you handle that? Well, there's a big difference between private company boards and public company boards. So let's talk about public company boards first, because you referenced, you know, PayPal and Dell, uh, two large companies that I serve on the boards of. The role of a board director in public companies has evolved dramatically over the last 10 years. And a lot of reasons for that. A lot of uh, um, things happened with Enron, for example, uh, WorldCom. You know, some massive fraud. And that happened uh, under the noses of the directors. And obviously, in some cases, um, management went to great lengths to keep that uh, from the board, uh, which was certainly the case at, at uh, WorldCom and Enron. And ultimately, it comes out. Th- that caused a lot of regulation and even legislation. You know, Sarbanes Oxley, um, you know, came out. Uh, at a time when they wanted to put more, more and more uh, sort of requirements. So long-winded answer to say board service went from, you know, four or five meetings a year, maybe a phone call, and really high-level oversight, which sometimes became a rubber stamp of whatever management said, to a lot more disclosure, expectation that the board was participating uh, and not just providing advice, uh, but providing real oversight into what management was doing with the shareholders' company. Because after all, public companies are owned by public shareholders. The board is representatives or elected as fiduciaries for them. So the expectation now is that boards are paying attention, actively involved, providing uh, questions, pushing back when appropriate. So all that leads to more time. Uh, I would say that on average, the, the time I spend today uh, is about twice what it was 10 or 15 years ago. And it wasn't maybe for lack of interest on my part. It's just that companies just didn't share that much. You had a big, thick presentation to go along with the board meeting. People would get up and talk. they make presentations. There was such dense material. There wasn't a lot of time for discussion and review. That's completely different today in most companies. Uh you got to be present. You got to be paying attention. What? How much time is involved in committees? I know you know the board. We had a gentleman a number uh, in our, our last season talk a little bit about public serving on a public board. But how much time is spent in uh, committee work within the board? A very important part of a board uh, is the role of committees. Uh, I chair, for example, the comp committee, compensation committee at, at uh, PayPal. Um, Compensation gets a tremendous amount of scrutiny. Uh, you have, uh, you know, different kinds of rules been published. You know where they they actually ask you to show the differential in pay between the CEO and the lowest paid person in the organization. Now, in terms of real value to shareholders, shareholders don't put a lot of value on that, but politicians do, and others <laughs> saying, "Oh, look at this! This this guy's making fifty six thousand times more than the." you know, the lowest level employee. Well, if you're, you know, a part-time worker 
uh, in CVS and the drugstore making 20 bucks an hour and the CEO's making $20 million. Does that really a, a fair comparison or does it, does it prove anything? Um, so our job is to make sure that we have compensation programs that are uh, fair, uh, generate the right results for shareholders. In other words, we're incentivizing management, the CEO, to, to lead in a way that comes to an outcome that benefits shareholders, which usually means the stock price goes up. You're proud of the company. You know, they're stand-up people. They're doing it the right way. So we spend a lot of time, and we have outside consultants to help us compare to other companies, how they're paying, how do we stack up. And then you get a grade every year. Um, a there's a firm called ISS, Institutional Shareholder Services, who review virtually every public company every year. Uh, and in compensation, they give them a grade, basically saying, you know, you, you're doing it right, you're doing it wrong. And that becomes in the way as a recommendation to shareholders about how to vote uh, for the ratification of compensation programs. And it's, it's not a, um, these comp votes are not, um, I can't remember, I think precatory is a word, I meaning it's not, you don't have to adopt it. It's just they're saying we we don't like it, uh, right. and we'd like you to do it differently. But they, you know, basically it's up to the board to change it. So it's pretty involved. Then you have governance committees, which basically look at the structure of the board, uh, the role, and who serves on the committees, who chairs the committees, uh, as well as refreshing the board with new recruits. And then probably the most uh, demanding is the audit committee, and the audit committee of the board is independent. Uh, it works for the chief financial officer, the external auditors, internal auditors, uh, and is basically there to ask any and all questions that would occur uh, in the normal course of business, uh, inspect things at a detail level. You typically have audit chairs that are either former CFOs, former accountants, be people who have a lot of experience. I personally, when I serve on the board, I want a really good audit committee chairman because I know <laughs> that they're reading every line and looking at every number. Uh, and it gives me a little more comfort if I happen to miss something, somebody else is, you know, looking you, at it as well. And you, you want to make sure you're not that audit chairman either, right? Uh, uh, that's right. That's, I, a, that's I, a tough one. I am, uh, I am considered a financial expert under the definitions of New York Stock Exchange, but I don't uh, feel like I need to be on an audit committee <laughs> if I don't have to. I'll, I'll tell you a funny story to talk about to emphasize the, the change that you said in terms of the role boards play. I will not reveal the, the name of the company, but I was working for a public company and I was a senior officer in one of the divisions and we presented our annual uh, plan to the parent company board. And uh, this was about the time when laptops were just becoming more popular. I'll date it a little bit. And during our presentation, not necessarily mine, thank goodness, but the chairman fell asleep. So he slept through the entire uh, annual plan presentation. And then when, when he was asked for his comments, his comments were, well, I've been, where our offices were in the same building as the corporate office. And he said, I've been noticing a lot of people uh, with these laptops, you know, let's not get carried away with laptops. That was his entire comment of the annual plan presentation. And well, it was, you know, and it was, uh, we, we actually have age limits you know, for directors, I'm 68. I could have served as chairman of CVS through the age of 74. Uh, on a personal level, I didn't see myself wanting to get on planes and flying to 
Rhode Island to board meetings at age 74 uh, because I have other things I want to do in my life. But also um, that's that old concept of, you know, they talk about the pitcher in the major leagues losing his fastball. You know, I'm not as sharp at 68 as I was at 40. Uh, I think I have a lot of experience to apply, uh, but I think it's really important for boards to stay fresh and each board member be expected to contribute and for God's sake, stay awake. <laughs> yeah, stay awake. And this was a pretty well-known chairman, a good guy. And I don't know if he was having a bad day or what, but he literally slept through the entire presentation, but he was more concerned about how many laptops we had. Uh, well, I used to have a way of, I used to have a way of handling that. I had a director in one of the companies I chaired who always fell asleep. Uh, now, whether they were narcoleptic or not, I don't know, but I would just slam the table with my hand as hard as I could. Um, you know, some people who were awake kind of, why did he do that? But the person who was asleep knew why. Yeah, got the point. Yeah, yeah. That same company, we had a gentleman that was over our, our labor relations and he was a little bit lazy. And uh, so he ended up trying to get all of the union contracts expired at the same time, which, uh, you know, made no sense, you know, from no. a leverage standpoint. But he was also a former uh, baseball pitcher in in the major leagues and minor leagues, I guess you should say. And the, the CEO said, yeah, the problem with him is he still thinks he's pitching only works one out of every four days. <laughs> uh, well, let's talk about CVS health just for a second. Uh, I'm certainly a client of, of CVS pharmacy, but you got three major business segments. Tell us a little bit about uh, those three business units. Well, the company started, uh, I don't know, something like 55 years ago in Lowell, Massachusetts. And one of the things that I always enjoy is asking people if they know what CVS stands for. You've heard it for years. I do not. Yeah, most people don't. But it stood uh, when the company was launched for consumer value stores. You know, it sort of started as a sundry store. And somewhere along the line, uh, five or six years after they started, one of the, the co-founders, uh, Ralph Hoagland, said, you know, this pharmacy, retail pharmacy business is kind of interesting we ought to try to do that. It might get more people in the store when they come to pick up their prescription. So the germ of the idea was how to build traffic in the store. And mm -hmm. as you know, over time, the pharmacy got located in the back and not always a direct route. And that was purposeful. So you had to kind of wind your way through and maybe you pass sure. the can candy aisle, maybe you pass the aspirin aisle, but you pick up a few things along the way. So CVS evolved as a regional drugstore chain in the Northeast. Uh, and then Tom Ryan, who served as CEO for 19 years, been retired about 12 years now. Tom retired a little bit early, he was in his early 60s, but you know served with the company for over 40 years. He uh, started as a pharmacist out of Rhode Island Pharmacy School uh, and then grew to be the, the CEO. Tom's vision was, how do we great, create scale without having to open stores uh, on a de novo basis, go into you know a new new town and put two or three stores in place to have enough to make a difference. And so he went on an acquisition spree and purchased People's Drugs up in the Northeast. That was sort of a mid-Atlantic chain. Eckerd Drugs, which was you know in the Southeast, very familiar. Right. Osco Savon, Long's Drugs on the West Coast in Hawaii. So over about a 10-year period, Tom... Uh, bought about 5,000 stores and grew the core of CVS to four or 5,000. So today it's it's just at 10,000 locations in virtually every uh, major city in the U.S. In fact, there's a CVS store within five miles uh, 
I think of, I think the number is 80% of the population of the U.S. If you go out to 10 miles, it's even higher. So there's a CVS not so far away. And obviously it's clustered around urban and large suburban areas. You you won't find too many out in Platt, Utah or wherever, you know, but that, that was the business. And they did that because they admired the scale that Walgreens had, which was in those days, you know, 8,000 plus stores, more than twice CVS size. So they were driven by competition. You know, hey, look at what they're doing. They have bigger buying power, more scale, better brand leverage. We want that. And so Tom pursued it. When that had played out to the point where there really wasn't that many significant chains left to buy, I mean, what's, I mean, uh, Rite Aid has actually shrunk dramatically. They were sort of the third national pharmacy chain. Grocery stores got into it. Certainly Walmart and Kroger uh, have drug stores or pharmacies, I should say. Uh, in the stores, but there are about 60,000 retail pharmacies and CVS has 10,000, which is slightly more than Walgreens, but there's still 30 plus thousand. Uh, I think that's right. 40, maybe even 40,000 independent pharmacies, which are sort of, you know, used to be called neighborhood pharmacies where right. there's one or two. Uh, Atlanta has one, I think called Wonder Robinson or something like that, which has got three or four stores, but that's still, uh, you know, a, a viable business, but it's harder and harder because the scale, both in purchasing drugs uh, and making them available and participating in networks, you know, for benefit plans, uh, favors the national player when you're dealing with national offers. That takes me to the second business CVS is in, which is called uh, prescription benefit management. Now, what this was is, you know, with the government programs like Medicare Part D. And all the employer plans, which include covering drug costs for their plan members. So if you work for AT&T, AT&T has a, a drug plan for employees. You know, it's managed by CVS Caremark, which is the name of the company that we acquired to start this. And they perform a valuable function for companies. Companies are not experts in drug selection and drug distribution and how they do it. They want to get a fair deal for their employees and pay a fair price. So CVS through Caremark negotiates with the pharma companies. Let's take Pfizer, for example, and you need to take Lipitor, you know, for your cholesterol and Pfizer offers it. But there are several other uh, cholesterol reducing drugs, so-called statins. Uh, You know, there's Crestor and uh, I'm trying to think of some of the others, maybe three or four of them. So CVS would negotiate with the manufacturers to say you will be included uh, in our formulary list of approved medicines that doctors can prescribe for this condition. And we're going to negotiate that price with you. And, you know, thousands of prescriptions or so, excuse me, thousands of pharmaceuticals yielding literally billions of prescriptions. If you think about a 12 month dose of a particular sure. drug, it is gigantic. So 400 I think prescription drugs in the U.S. alone is $400 billion a year uh, in business. And that goes from the manufacturers to the distributors. So that PBM business is a huge business, over $100 billion, uh, and serves health plans and employers as well as the government uh, with this expertise that they would not ordinarily have. The third leg of the stool, which is more recent, uh, I goes back, I think five years ago, CVS bought Aetna, which was a you know huge health insurer. Uh, they're 
they call them managed care organizations where Aetna would work on behalf, again, of an employer, let's say like CVS or an individual for a Medicare part, uh, you know, Medicare Advantage plan, as they call it, something that lays over the top of your government Medicare policy and provides additional benefits that Medicare may not cover, like an annual physical or, you know, something that's important right. to you. And you can you can customize somewhat the features to fit where you are in life. If you're a young, healthy person in your 20s, you probably don't need the same level of service that a 65-year-old does. And so you may take a plan that is less expensive and covers catastrophic situations. You have a bad auto accident and you're in the hospital for three months. Uh, that is clearly beyond you know, most people's capability to deal with. So you need a, a base plan and then you know it gets more sophisticated and more nuanced as you get older and have existing conditions, for example. So Aetna uh, added that dimension. So CBS now is a full-service healthcare company. Uh, it has clinic services and the pharmacies. Aetna can refer. Uh, Aetna insures to those to do everything from being tested for COVID to receiving vaccinations for flu, shingles. So it is changing uh, the front door of healthcare to not be the doctor's office, but another site of care and with the idea that you want to direct people to the lowest, most effective, most convenient site of care, you know, for what's ailing them at the moment, and then use that as a launching point to say, well, you know, you've got a heart arrhythmia, you need to see a specialist, you need to see a cardiologist, so that might be referred out. Or, hey, you've just got a little skin rash here, it does, you know, doesn't look great, but it can be cured with a topical ointment, which they can prescribe right on the spot. So the idea is convenience. And what I like to say is consumerization of healthcare. So that's kind of the, the three legs of the stool. That, that's interesting. I didn't realize the, uh, the Aetna connection. Uh, that is, that is full service, if you will. Well, now that you've described the, the depth and the width of CBS being a $300 billion company and as chairman, how do you go about setting priorities for, for an organization that side? And, and then even uh, more importantly, how do you communicate that through that type of an organization? Well, first of all, uh, we were talking about boards earlier. I neglected to make the point that, you know, the, the notion of an independent chairperson uh, is relatively new. It's, it's not, I mean, in terms of real practice, there have always been some, but generally speaking, uh, there weren't that many truly independent chairmen. In other words, you didn't grow up in the company to keep the CEO and then kind of retire into being chairman for seven or eight more years. Uh, you know, and part of this transformation I talked about with boards, independent chairman became an important role to represent shareholders, manage the board, and have a relationship with management. The way that I tried to do it, and it kind of gets to your question, was the chairman needs to have a very uh, candid open collegial relationship with the CEO. They need to be simpatico. Uh, the chairman is not the CEO, nor should they try to do anything that looks right. like the CEO's job. And the CEO needs to respect that the board has elected a leader and it, it is efficient for the CEO to deal with this board, board chair uh, a lot of the time, but you can't ignore the rest of the directors. I always tell CEOs, you ignore the rest of the board by focusing on me at your own peril. 
I have one boat. <laughs> yeah, it's great. There are 10 of them. There are 10 of them. So I think that to, to really get down to what you want to try to communicate, and I'll give you a great example of this. Uh, drug stores, for the most part, have always sold cigarettes. It was a convenience item. It was at the counter. You come in, pick up a carton of Winston's, and off you go. Uh, as we made our uh, decisions to evolve into more healthcare than just pure pharmacy, the question needed to be asked, is it appropriate for a healthcare company to sell cigarettes given the linkage between significant disease uh, and smoking that is now beyond obvious, right? It's proven medical right. fact. And we put together a plan to launch CVS Health, renaming the company from CVS Pharmacy to CVS Health. And it, it wasn't me, but one of our directors said, okay, I get it. This makes a lot of sense. We're going to involve into care. We're going to have you know, doctors. We have nurses. We're going to have you know, other programs. But let me see if I got this right. So CVS is a healthcare company where I go to buy my cigarettes. That's <laughs> pretty and succinct, it, isn't it? And it, the meeting stopped, and we all realized, well, that that's absolutely right. So we made a decision at that moment we were going to exit the sale of tobacco and tobacco products, which was two billion dollars a year in revenue and over two hundred million in profit, and that we would phase that out as quickly as we could get rid of the existing inventory, wouldn't order anymore. Uh, and then we would launch CVS Health. And so that cynics couldn't say, well, they're, you know, they're, they're selling cigarettes and, you know, they just can't be serious. Now, here we are, that was, I don't know, seven, eight years ago, nine years ago, something like that. Walgreens is still selling cigarettes. Now, how cynical do you have to be to do that? I've just I'm sure y'all don't point. I'm sure y'all don't point that out in at any time. Either. Yeah, but we we uh, the board, you know, really made that you know observation, and management kind of went, "Gee, that was obvious. We should have caught it." So the board prov provides a very important oversight role, uh, and clearly advice, mentorship, uh, guidance, uh, and and I tried to be. You know, for I had three different CEOs at CVS that I served with, uh, and was involved in the selection process for for two of the three. And I think being a confidant that the CEO knows they can talk to, right, and says, "Here's what I'm thinking. What do you think?" and have that trusted relationship. If you don't, you know, it's it's awkward, and you sort of feel like you're having to pry information out. That's not good if you're on the board side, and if you're on the CEO side. The chairman's meddling. That's not good. So being able to communicate with 300,000 plus employees and stay on point and have a, you know, what I like to call is a true North Star that everybody can relate to that, you know, we're, we want to assist our customers on their path to better health. That's sort of the company's slogan, whether that's in eating better, stopping smoking, you know, uh, getting the right kind of care, you know, getting a physical that that's something everybody in the company you know can sort of relate to and that that's a huge task and today we got a lot of modern tools you got you know people can go and look at a podcast they can do a video you know they can learn more about a particular aspect of business all these resources are available to try to help people understand and grow uh, and engage right engaged employees 
uh, you know, that feel like they're making a difference are hugely important for a company like this. And this is a, a fact. It's not maybe well understood, but doctors are generally intimidating. You know, the, you know, the whole quote bedside manner and the, and the more brilliant they are and the more busy they are, the less they want to be questioned. So people seek answers and sometimes they're afraid of their doctors. So guess who they ask? The pharmacist. <laughs> pharmacist. Right? They tend to be, you know, dealing with people all day long. Uh, they understand and have the training to say, now, this says the side effect of this is, you know, itchy scalp or whatever it may be. The pharmacist can say it does happen, but, you know, not that often. I wouldn't worry about it. This is really important. They, they are reassuring. And we have found that that uh, the 40,000 pharmacists at CVS have play a big role in helping the average person kind of deal with this, you know, medical community that sometimes is, you know, not the greatest at, at communicating. Well, I'll support that statement because uh, I was in your CVS store the other day. And there were two people in front of me, and the one who was at the counter talking to the pharmacist was exa doing exactly what you just said, saying, I'm having trouble understanding, getting my doctor to really give me clarity on, you know, why this and this, that, and the other. And right. the pharmacist, without being disrespectful to the time of the other people in line, were, were very, uh, very professional about putting this person at ease and giving them enough information that they needed, but not overwhelming them. Well, Dave, we got we got time for one more question. Uh, a lot of our audience are young folks uh, that are early on in their career. Uh, what advice would you share with a person who's either just starting their career or in the early stages? Well, you know, one of the things that I think people early on, uh, either they feel pressure or they don't feel pressure. If they feel pressure, I got to have a career. I got to figure this out. I got to know what I'm doing. They can overthink it. Uh, and, and I think on the other spectrum is just kind of going through life pushed by the water without a real, you know, impetus of their own or a rudder. Uh, and you know, let's face it, there's a continuum there of people who sort of fall out. I always like to say, you know, you don't know enough. I mean, you're really lucky if you know enough starting out what you're really going to like and not like. I mean, I have friends who you really thought they wanted to be lawyers because someone told them they ought to be a lawyer. They go to law school, they come out and they go get stuck in a room researching casework uh, for the, the big lawyer. And they do that for two or three years and realize this is miserable. I'm working 10 hours a day. I'm not really seeing clients. I'm not solving problems. Now, you know, that's a profession along with medical. There's a lot of training required and there are a lot of dues to be paid. You know, so that you pop out the other end as this, you know, brilliant trial lawyer or whatever it may be. I think you got to give things enough of a chance. And you also should use resources that help you be introspective. You know, what are you good at? I mean, we've all run into someone, let's say uh, someone working in retail who has a personality that should have them not in front of people, but somewhere in the back room because they don't relate to people and they're introverted. Not they're bad people. It's just, they don't have that personality. And I, like Chick-fil-A does a great job of putting people in that line who are positive, enthusiastic, and helpful. And every now and again, you know, things get busy and people are not their best. But I, I was on the board of Yum Brands for years, which was you know, Kentucky Fried Chicken Taco yeah. Bell. They looked for people who would be great line cooks. That you know, They were the happiest when they were flipping 24 burgers 
moving things through, you know, following a process. And there are other people who are awful at that, but yet were great with personality and customer service. So I think you got to figure out who are you, right? And if, and if, you're, if you've got immediate success and you're really capable, maybe you don't need to do this. But if you aren't, you might say, you know, what, what are my uh, sort of personality attributes and what do they lead me to do? And what do I really enjoy doing uh, that, you know, may be useful in my work or applicable to work? And obviously, I'd like to tell you that I had my world all plotted out. If you told me when I graduated from Georgia Tech in 1975 that I'd end up being chairman of CBS, chairman of Motorola, chairman and CEO of AT&T and PacBell, that was not in my thinking process at the time. I just thought if I could ever pop out of here and get a job making $50,000 a year, I will have arrived. Um, <laughs> I can relate I, to that. And so I, I tell you know, I work with a lot of brilliant young people, you know, PhD scientists and technology companies that I back, you know, who are so much more well put together. Now, some some of them all expect to be Bill Bill Gates uh, or Sergey Brin or Elon Musk because they're smart, and therefore I'm smart. Elon's smart. I can be Elon. Let's face it. There's a huge amount of luck and timing that comes into these incredible success stories. And the ones that are durable for a long time, like Microsoft, I'll use as an example, has been Michael Dell. Michael Dell started his company at 20 in his dorm room at the University of Texas, dropped out, and now 37 years later has been running Dell since the very beginning. He's 57 years old now. Um, I think Forbes says he's worth $60 billion or some such thing. He's a completely normal guy. He's still hard at it. You know, being on his board, I get to see this up front and clo close. And he has gained great wisdom over 37 years of building a company, $100 billion in revenue. But Michael will tell you, you know, all he knew at the beginning was he was trying to figure out how to build a computer and ship it to somebody and sell a few of them. And many didn't have to go back to school. <laughs> and, and, that was his and, motivation. And, you know, well, and you know, the point is, boy, did he ever pick a great time to start something called a computer company because it was the golden age. Now, he had no way of knowing that, that, you know, technology would proliferate into laptops and now phones and, and certainly desktops. You know, he was in the right place at the right time with the right energy and the right chutzpah to sort of put things together. Now, that doesn't get repeated very often. And, you know, if you don't end up like Michael Dell, doesn't mean you're a failure. I mean, just uh, I have a son today who's been a software sales guy. He's a very effective technology salesperson. He knows his stuff. But, you know, his passion is working with people. And to the extent that his job allows him to do that, people trust him. He uses that capability. But I've always thought of him as an entrepreneur, as someone who's going to have his own business treat people the way he wants to be treated. And, and I don't even know what that might end up being. Um, I have a daughter who's an entrepreneur, started a very successful luxury towel company, sells directly to consumers based in Atlanta called Wheezy Towels. She, she went to Columbia Business School, came out. I thought she was going to work with me in our technology investing business. She said, I'll be a much better, uh, better investor if I'm a successful entrepreneur. I said, well, that's interesting. What are you going to do? I'm going to launch a towel company. What? A towel company? You just went to <laughs> Columbia Business School? That's what you're going to do? Well, 
she's built it into a, you know, a very nice eight figure business and still growing um, and has created a brand and the education she's received in dealing with people and getting to the point where she's got, I don't know, 65, 70 employees, you know, that is teaching her a lot about herself uh, that, that she didn't know before. So anyway, long-winded answer is know yourself, get, get some help, talk to people that you can, that you trust and are mentors that'll be honest with you. And even it's very easy to even get professional stuff online. You can, you can sign up for tests. You can look at your personality type. Then that will say people like you end up in sales or they end up in management or administration or in research don't do this in an uninformed way and depend on luck you know hope is not a strategy it's a strategy it's just not a very successful one <laughs> uh, well david listen thank you so much for for sharing your story with us today i wish we had more time to be able to get deeper into your business experience and i know we only scratched the surface of the things that you've been able to accomplish and are still accomplishing and could be sharing uh, advice with us. But I, I can only imagine, as I said earlier, what your schedule looks like. And, and I just sincerely appreciate you setting aside time to spend with us today. I'm glad to do it, Jack. Well, as we wrap up another Knowledge Cast episode, a special thanks to each of you for making us part of your day. I hope that you'll join us again next week for another interesting guest. And until then, make it your goal this week be a positive influence in the lives of others.